Good morning. This morning I'll be reading to you from Psalms 119, verses 9 through 16. How can a young person stay pure? By obeying your word. I have tried hard to find you. Don't let me wander from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I praise you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. I have recited aloud all the regulations you have given us. I have rejoiced in your laws as much as in riches. I will study your commandments and reflect on your ways. I will delight in your decrees and not forget your word. And from Proverbs 23, verse 7, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Uh, Mary, thank you for, uh, for reading for us this morning. Um, as, as Wes said, uh, my name is Todd Bradley, and um, just want to get this clear up front. I'm not a member of staff. Uh, I'm a member here at Parkway. Actually, I am a member of the Staff Parish Relationship Committee. Um, and in that role as a, a member of the SPR, uh, I want to make an announcement. Um, this past week was our annual conference and um, just one piece of business that was, was affirmed at the conference is that our ordained staff here at Parkway will be returning uh, for another year. That would be uh, Susan, Wes, and Julie. Uh, and they'll be joining Bruce Case and serving our Parkway Heights for the next year. Um, so we, uh, we celebrate with that and um, excited for that. Yeah, I used to... Um, to always clarify on the front end that, that I'm not ordained. Uh, that's no longer true. Um, this past year, I did receive ordination, but it wasn't from the Methodist Church. And that's a story to tell. I hope to tell it sometime, get an opportunity to tell you more about that. But, but technically, I, I, I am ordained. But more than that, I am a member here at Parkway Heights, just like you. And, and, and I've been a lifelong member here. Matter of fact, I was, I was raised in this church. Um, not bragging, but just so you know, um, my mother, uh, my uncle, my grandparents were charter members here at Parkway. So, so you can imagine just how special a place this is for me. And again, having grown up here and grown up in a Christian home, um, I'm, sorry, I'm sad to confess to you that I didn't discover the Bible until I was over 30 years old. You say, oh, well, gee, how can that happen, Todd? I mean, if you grew up here in Parkway and, and you had Christian parents, how is it that you didn't discover the Bible? Well, I used to dismiss it as the fact that we're Methodist and we really don't have to know the Scriptures, right? That's our tradition. But that couldn't be further from the truth because if you know Methodist tradition, you know that um, just how, how uh, deep the tradition of, of knowledge of Scripture and sharing of Scripture goes with the Methodist Church and in the Wesleyan tradition. So, so what was it? Again, I've got to say I wasn't totally ignorant of the Scripture. I mean, I, I had a Bible, and, and I knew most of the books of the Bible, and some of them I could even tell you if they were New Testament or Old Testament. And, and I knew some of the stories, but I never really saw the Bible for what it was until, like I say, I was almost 30 years old, and I took the disciple Bible study here at Parkway Heights. And I'm very grateful to uh, Bishop Bruce Wilkie, 
who designed that disciple program. He's returning to helping return the Methodist Church to its biblical roots. And it also had a, a very important impact in my life in doing that study. And what I learned during that study is that, that this book that we call the Bible, 66 books, no less than 40 writers, written over a period of 1,500 years, but it's one unified book. And see, what I discovered is, is it's a unified book because it has one author, God himself. And it has one central theme. It's God's revelation of himself and his plan of salvation to you and to me. And that's very powerful, very powerful. And as I was taking that class, and I was really excited about it, I was getting into it, I was learning, I remember praying, Lord God, give me a hunger, a hunger for your word that never goes away. God answered that prayer. And, and that hunger has manifested itself in for the last 25 years, I've committed myself to studying. And that commitment to studying has, has uh, transformed into a passion for teaching and for preaching. And I must confess to you that, that I I'm much, see myself much more in a teaching capacity than a preaching capacity. But this morning, it is my joy and my privilege and true blessing to be here today to, uh, to share with you um, the message this morning. So as we look at that, can we begin in prayer? Gracious God, again, we, we thank you for, for who you are. Father, you've heard this morning our, our songs of praise. Father, you've heard our concerns lifted up. Father, you've received our gifts, and we pray that all of this has glorified your name. Father, now as we turn to your word, I ask you to be with your servant who delivers the message, Father, that, um, that the word spoken would be yours. Father, for everyone who hears this, Father, I ask that, um, that they would receive it in the way it was intended. Father, standing on the promise of your word, that your word will never return void. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one thing about studying scripture that never ceases to amaze me is finding out that the truths revealed in the Bible are confirmed in experience. You know, sometimes it seems that it's uh, small, um, trivial, even insignificant ways, but each time you find a truth that's confirmed in experience, it makes you want to dig a little deeper and to learn a little more. Share with you a recent story uh, on a routine visit to the doctor. Um, my doctor asked me a question I'd never been asked before. She said, how is your memory? And yeah, I was a little taken aback about that, but then it realized it's a fair question. I'm no longer um, in my 30s. And, you know, how's your memory? And I said, well, it's not what it used to be. And see, I can, while I've never been really good at, at, um, at remembering names, I can look at someone and I can tell you their life story, conversations we've had, things we've done together, but I just can't call a name. That's what I said. You know, I said, I'm just not very good with names. And she suggested this. She said, have you considered Proverbs 23, 7? Whatever a man thinks in his heart, so he is. And what she was trying to say there was that if I say in my heart that I'm not very good with names, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And in, in reality, 
If I say that I'm not very good at names, then I tell myself I don't have to try. It's a cop-out, right? So my thoughts then translate into my actions. But if that's true, should it not work both ways? Should the converse of that not be true? If I say in my heart, I'm good at remembering names, then what does that force me to do? It forced me to be intentional, to listen more closely when someone says their name, to repeat that to myself. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, this technique is relatively new to me. I haven't really experimented with it well, so the, I guess in my mind the jury's still out on whether this worked, but I take my doctor's word for it. But what it got me to do was thinking about where, uh, what other experiences have I had where this technique or this truth is revealed. Well, my family would tell you that I'm, that I'm a golfer because I spend a good bit of time away from home telling them I'm going to the golf course. I don't know that I view myself as a golfer. Let's say I'm a golf enthusiast. But what I know from experience in playing golf or trying to play golf is that the probability of success and hitting a shot the way you want to hit it lies in first having the ability to visualize a positive outcome. And if you play golf, you understand that. And what I know from experience is that a golfer standing over a putt, if he wants that ball to go in the hole, if standing over it, he can't visually see the ball rolling across the ground and going into the hole, his probability of success go way down. That part I know from experience. But I wondered... What is true in golf? Is it true in other sports? So with the help of Google, I found out that it's true in basketball. Sports psychologists and coaches all believe that a player's shooting ability lies in his ability to visualize the ball going in the hoop before it leaves his hands. Again, what we, what we see, if we can visualize success, we increase our chances for success. It turns out Jack Nicklaus, Michael Jordan, Muhammad Ali all shared one thing in common, is that they had an ability to visualize themselves successful, and therefore they were successful. Matt Mayberry is a former NFL player, played with the Chicago Bears. Um, today, he's a motivational speaker and what he calls a, a peak performance strategist. And he's written several articles for Entrepreneur Magazine. And a couple of those articles, this truth stands out. The first step to business success is seeing one as successful. Whatever a man thinks in his heart, so he is. So after my conversation with my doctor and, and thinking about this, my curiosity was piqued. So I turned to the scriptures, and I use, I don't know what, what translation you use. I, I use a typically a New Living translation or a New International Version at home. And so I remembered the, the passage that said, Proverbs 23, 7, and I went and looked it up, and the passage in my Bible was almost unrecognizable. It had nothing to do with what a man thinks in his heart. So, after some more research and doing some translation of my own, I came to the conclusion that the New King James that uh, Mary read for us this morning is a very accurate translation of, of what the original text said. Um, so why the difference? And without getting bogged down into all the theories on that, um, in short, translators are a little bit cautious about writing something that gives the appearance 
that we as humans have the ability to choose our own destiny. We can, we can make self-fulfilling prophecies by what we put in our heart. And, and the idea of just taking a little phrase, taking it out of context, and making that statement, that's a little broad. But, but put the passage in context, and let's see what happens. Um, in context, the passage is speaking of a person with an evil eye. And the writer of Proverbs says that if someone has evil in their eye, it's the result of evil in their heart. And therefore, they're an evil person. In the passage is an admonishment not to eat with that evil part, eat with evil people. And, and while the passage is, is interesting and it's directing us from you know, who we should associate ourselves with or who we should not associate ourselves with, it reveals a reality that what is in our hearts has a way of becoming real. Well, turns out that this idea of, of our hearts having that type of impact, what we put in our hearts, is uh, prevalent throughout the scriptures. In the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, the heart is more than just an organ that pumps blood through the body. The heart is a repository of all of our thoughts and our emotions, and it ultimately, ultimately controls our speech and our actions. In Genesis chapter 6, prior to the flood, the Lord observed that the hearts of men were intent on evil. And the result of this condition of the heart was wickedness throughout the world. The wicked actions of the people were an expression of what was in their hearts. In the New Testament, we see the heart seen in a, in a similar way. Jesus tells um, in Luke's gospel, a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. An evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. Again, even in the New Testament, we see that the, the heart controlling our emotions, our thoughts, our speech, and even our actions. Of course, if we correctly recognize the biblical understanding of the heart, then we can see why the writer of Proverbs can say, Whatever a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Because what we put into our heart has the power to change our perspective. Because we're all familiar, I'm sure, with the cliche, perception is reality. Well, sure, that's just a cliche, but how do cliches become cliches? Because we acknowledge there's an element of truth there. So if we can change our perception by controlling what we put in our heart, then we do have the power to change our reality. This ability that we have to control what we put in our heart and ultimately control our, our thoughts and our actions is very powerful. And when I go back to my original illustration about the memory loss, you know, I've got a choice. You know, I can, I can believe the, uh, the worldly wisdom that just says with age comes a certain amount of memory loss. Or I can do like my doctor suggests and, and, and I can tell myself that, no, I control the outcome here. And um, again, it's a choice that I make. Which one am I going to put in my heart? And now while I am a little concerned about, about memory loss coming with age, I thought about a bigger question. What do we do when we have conflicting voices where the world may tell us one thing, but yet God's word tells us something different? Which one will we put in our heart? Which one will we choose to believe? 
Well, that's what makes it so important to know what God's Word says so we can understand and discern when we have conflicting voices. You know, the world's wisdom or conventional wisdom would tell us that the universe is a really big place. Even this planet that we call Earth has 7.3 billion inhabitants. How could it be that God, having to deal with 7.3 billion people, has time to concern himself with me? How could God even know me? How could God even care about me? How could God consider me? If we listen to the wisdom of the world, we would say that it's not possible. It's not possible. But God's Word says a lot on the subject. Perhaps the best well-known passage from the, uh, from the Old Testament that speaks to this is Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Now that's something important to write in our hearts. That God says that he not only does he know us, he knew us from before we were born. Write that in our hearts. In the New Testament, in Romans, Paul writes, while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Us. That's you and me. Let that soak in. That while you and I were still sinners, Christ died for us. What Paul's saying is, is that God's love for you is so great that he would rather die for you than live without you. The scripture says, yes, God knows you personally and wants to have a relationship with you. That's what you need to write in your heart. Not what the world says, but what God's Word says. Of course, the world has um, a unique way of defining success. The world say that success is measured with commas and checkbooks, measured by the size of a house or the cost of an automobile. The world says success is looking a certain way or dressing a certain way or perhaps even being something that God didn't create us to be. You know, how much anxiety do we create for ourselves by trying to be something that God didn't create us to do or to be? I love the way the writer of Ecclesiastes summarizes the pursuit of success in this world. He says it's all vanity. It's all nothing. He explains his reasoning for saying that. He says, naked we came into this world, and that's the way we return. You see, the success of this world, we can't take it with us. In the New Testament, Jesus tells a story to his disciples of about a rich farmer who has an abundant crop. And he's got nowhere to store all this abundance, so he tears down his existing barns, and he builds big new ones. And on that night, he died. And Jesus poses this question. What value was this man's worldly success? It was of no value because he couldn't take it with him. The New Testament tells us to store up our treasures in heaven, to invest in things that are eternal. Jesus says again in Matthew's gospel, he says, where our treasures are, that is where our hearts are. Again, our actions agree with what's in our hearts. You know, another thing the world would tell us that we're defined by our past. I doubt that there's anyone here that's never made a mistake, done something that they were embarrassed about or ashamed of and regretted. 
the world would tell us that we're defined by that. A few weeks ago, David Sellers preached, and he's talked about the disciple that we know as Thomas. And what do we know him by what? Doubting Thomas. Well, why do we do that? Because of one incident in Scripture where we perceive he had a moment of weakness, he denied the resurrection of Jesus. So now, for, therefore, we know him as Doubting Thomas. Now, we don't know a lot about Thomas. We know a little bit. We can assume that like the other disciples of Jesus, he left family, he left a job or a vocation, gave up his life to follow Jesus. After the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, um, church tradition tells us that Thomas took the gospel to India, where he was later martyred. But we don't know Thomas as Thomas the faithful disciple. We don't call him Thomas the church planner or Thomas the martyr. We choose to call him Doubting Thomas. Again, we remember him for his failures. And if the church can define one of the true champions of our faith by his mistakes, how much more does the world tell us that we're defined by our past? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that we're not defined by our past. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Which image do you want to put in your heart? Your image of yourself is defined by the past or the image of someone who's being transformed into the image of Christ? Whichever one you put in your heart has a way of becoming reality. Now, this list of, of conflicts between the world and the Word it's not exhaustive. It's not intended to be. It's intended just to get you to think. What are we going to put into our heart? Who are we going to believe? You know, this week our children are going to be studying in, in vacation Bible school, and I, I've not really looked through the material. I saw the promotional video, and I've heard some comments that staff from Leslie of, of what that's about. And what I've gathered, it's about teaching our children what the scripture says about the world around them, to prepare them to go into a world that might not be believing. Well, if it's important for our children to get that message, how much more is it important for us as adults to get that same message? That what we put into our hearts is important. And the quality of the stuff that's in our heart is directly linked to the quality of the source of information we get. Are we going to rely on God's Word? Or are we going to rely on what the, word say, or the world tells us? We're going to look at one more example. Uh, as mentioned earlier, world population is about 7.3 billion people. 84% um, of that, or roughly 6.2 billion people, practice some form of religion. About 2.2 billion of that is Christian, the other four billion is practicing something else, and there's thousands of religions. Um, and one thing that's true that all religions have in common is they share a belief in a deity, the belief in a deity or a higher being, and that religious practice is intended to help connect with that deity or that higher power. Now, the world may tell us that all religions are the same in the end that no one religion can be said to be any better or more effective at connecting with the deity than the next one. Or you might say, it doesn't matter which one you choose, just so long as you choose one. However, Christianity shares some unique characteristics 
And one of the most unique characteristics of Christianity that the other four billion people in the world that are, that are practicing religion can never get is Christians have the assurance that they've connected with God. God's Word tells us about that assurance. Again, Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, he says, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's our assurance. Confess with your mouth. What did Jesus tell us comes out of the mouth? It's in our heart. What's in our heart is what comes out of the mouth. And that assurance that we have, you and I know. We know, we know, we know what is in our heart. And if you've experienced that changing of the heart, then you know that your emotions have changed as well. Your thoughts, your speech, and ultimately your actions. And it doesn't matter if the world sees that or not. You know that in your heart, and that's the assurance. And if you've not experienced that, my word to you today is you can you can write those words in your heart. Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. And you can experience that change. But it brings us back to where we started. Proverbs 23, 7. Whatever a man thinks in his heart, so he is. What we put in our heart becomes who we are. If we put the things of God and the image of Christ in our hearts and we meditate on that, then we begin to take on the character of Christ. What would we put in our heart? Things of the world or things of God's world? My challenge to you this morning is this. Make an effort to fill your heart with the things of God. There's lots of ways you can do that. For me, the most significant is spending time studying Scripture and in prayer. You know, we can say that we want to, we choose to put the things of God in our heart. But how do we know that's what we're doing? That we have to know God's word to know what we're putting in our heart is indeed his word. Of course, you may think that, well, I don't have time to do that. I'm not really one that, that reads and studies. I've been there. I was that guy. But I prayed a prayer that said, God, give me a hunger. And I would ask you, if you see yourself as that person, pray that prayer. God, give me a hunger for your word. I want to know you. My promise to you is this. God won't disappoint. He will not disappoint you in that prayer. Can we pray? Gracious God, again, we thank you for your word. Father, for this time that we spent together today. Father, I ask that... Um, through the hearing of that word, Father, that, um, that lives will be changed, that people will be brought into a closer walk with you, Father, and the world would see light in dark places. In Jesus' name, amen.